everybody. Welcome back to No More Silos. My name is Erica and this is my podcast on cultural Christianity. Welcome back. Hey, it has been a while since I last recorded an episode. In fact, so much has happened and I'd love to share a little bit with you, uh, my faithful listeners, and uh, just know I really appreciate that you have been listening and following on uh, Instagram and Facebook page and Patreon. We're actually, I'm actually working on some new material to uh, update the Patreon site soon so that, um, yeah, so that you will benefit from it in our No More Silos world. One of the things that I've been thinking a lot about lately, mainly because of something that happened last week, um, is that when we don't know our history, we're doomed to repeat it. And you've probably heard that before. And today I want to talk a little bit about the broader scope of church history, or I, I guess history in general, that while some might find it boring, I'm guessing as listeners of No More Silos, you'll find it just as fascinating as I do. But first, let me tell you where I've been the last four or five months. Um, my uh, oldest daughter graduated high school and she is now away at college. That has been a huge transition in our household. Um, I've been kind of half-jokingly pointing out that no one's around to wash the dishes anymore. Um, yes, yeah, so there's that. Um, I graduated uh, with a doctorate in ministry, um, and I am really excited about that. That was a huge transition because now I read literally for fun, not just because I enjoy reading. And so um, my focus with my doctoral work was... Uh, the theology around discipleship, my focus was discipleship, um, but the theology part of it was the intersection of faith, gender, race, ethnicity, class, how it all comes together. And that is actually known as womanist theology, a term coined by uh, Alice Walker in, I think, the 70s. And uh, for those of you who don't know who Alice Walker is, she's the one who wrote the book, Color Purple, um, The Color Purple. And so anyway, um, yeah, so my kid graduated high school. I graduated uh, with a doctorate. Um, I have been busy the last few months also working on developing an online course uh, that I'm actually running right now at our church. It's a hybrid class right now, mainly because I'm alternating weeks, one week in person, one week online, because some of the content I know I can go you know, straight to video, right? But other things, I really wanted to test run in front of a live audience to get that immediate feedback. Plus, I just enjoy teaching. Um, so we've been having a lot of fun with that. And I'll share more details about that later this fall. Because when I launch it as an online course, you'll be able to, hey, sign up. Um, but if you want to start previewing some of that, definitely sign up for our Patreon account at No More Silos because I'll be previewing some of the topics there as well, just to kind of just get that feedback, like I said, fine-tune uh, fine what I'm thinking. Um, what else can I tell you? Uh, I've been reading a lot. Like I said, I've been preparing and developing this course, and I actually saw a post today on social media that said something to the effect of, it had an anonymous, uh, anonymous quote, that when you are inspired, you should write, which I've been doing, but when you're uninspired, you should read. I've been doing a lot of that too. And some days I just wake up and I'm like, you know, I think I'm just going to read. And so my husband actually thought that I was going to uh, not buy quite as many books when I finished my degree. But yeah, so that hasn't happened. I've probably actually bought more books. So 
I started a No More Silo summer reading list that actually morphed into a reconstruction reading list. And I'll link to it in the notes for you. Um, as I'm revamping the website uh, at ericasantiago.com, in having right now, you can access uh, previous episodes of No More Silos there and a few blog posts. I'm working on putting more, doing more writing um, because a lot of the information that I want to share or that I find interesting is not necessarily. Uh, content that in its best form is appropriate for a podcast. I don't know, maybe you think so, but I like to try to keep this as a kind of flowing, I like to try to keep this as a just kind of a flowing thought process, right? So I did an episode about books when I kicked off this new season. And we're going to continue in season, I think we're in season three, we're going to continue in that vein where we're talking about deconstruction and reconstruction. And that's how I, so we've got that reading list, but I want to share with you that the three books that I read this summer that probably impacted me the most. And, and I, I the way that I'm looking at it is this, your personal theology is not complete without understanding the beginning and the end. And so in theological terms, we would talk about it as creation and eschatology. And we live as disciples of Jesus in the midst, in the middle of that. But if our understanding of creation is overrun by culture, again, this to- this podcast is all about culture and Christianity, right? If our understanding of creation is overrun by culture and our understanding of eschatology, our understanding of the end times is also overrun by culture, then we we are misaligned. And I might actually do an episode. Actually, you know what? I think I will. I'm going to do an episode about these two books and the impact that they had. So let me let me give you this pink this picture for you. So this summer I've been reading Angela Parker's book, If God Still Breathes, Why Can't I? Black Lives Matter and Biblical Authority. I'll link to it in the notes for you so that you can get your own copy. Dr. Parker is a professor uh, New Testament and Greek at Mercer University's uh, theology school in uh, here in Georgia. And I follow her. I found her on Twitter before it became X while I was still on Twitter. And I haven't really been on Twitter all summer uh, much because eh, it's just not the same anymore. But anyway, uh, I found her on Twitter and I really, I bought her book and I'm just, I was blown away by the content. Now, granted, you probably need to have a theology degree to follow some of the things that she covers in there, but it is accessible to the everyday reader. So I do want you to go get it, check it out, buy it. Um, the things that she focuses on in there are the infallibility and uh, inerrancy of the Bible and its connection to white supremacy. And as long-term listeners here on No No More Silos, and even if this is the very first episode you've ever listened to, um, I want you to know that that is something that we've been talking about now um, since this podcast started in 2020. The connection uh, and the manifestation of white supremacy and the impact on Christianity in America. Um, it's, It's It's the pool we swim in here, right? But the other two books actually don't have really, on the surface, don't have anything to do with that, but are just as impactful to that topic. The first one is on creation. 
It's called Being God's Image, Why Creation Still Matters by Carmen Joy Imes. Uh, She's also a professor. um, She's a professor of Old Testament at Biola University. And um, this book, you've got to get it. I mean, I have so many pages flagged. I'm actually, I am putting together a podcast episode just on that, along with the end times with the eschatology part, a book by Scott McKnight uh, called Revelation for the Rest of Us. A prophetic call to follow Jesus as a dissident disciple. A prophetic call to follow Jesus as a dissident disciple. He takes into account the four different ways that people view the end times um, as we've come to know them. And of course, my personal favorites are the ones that uh, led to the most recent episode that we have here on No More Silos, where I talk about the end times and how that sent a whole bunch of us uh, Gen Xers to therapy um, as a result. But um, he, he takes all that apart. And at the end of the day, What he points out is simply that Revelation is about being a public disciple of Jesus. I mean, think about it. Here's John effectively in prison. He's on house arrest on an island, and he has this vision, this encounter with Jesus. He tells us about it, and he's basically giving commentary on the church, those those letters to the church, right? He's giving commentary on the church, and they're effectiveness or lack thereof of their discipleship efforts. And he's giving commentary on the empire, which is basically the government, the political and economic system that is in play in his time frame. And so in his context, this is what he's dealing with. Now, going back to Dr. Imes book, Carmen Imes book, Being God's Image, she basically says, if we don't get creation right, we don't get any of everything that comes after Genesis, right. We don't even get revelation right if we don't understand creation. And so for that reason, I'll probably have to do a whole other episode just on that. But those are the three books that really impacted me this summer. And um, I've been integrating them into the course development uh, process. But today I want to share some insights that I have had recently on theology and history around where our ideas come from. That has been a constant theme here on the podcast. Where do we get our ideas from? Why do I think the way that I do? And and at what point in, in the time, the big timeline of history, did this idea show up? And when it did, was it debunked? Did people say yay? Did people say nay? Like, what is it about this particular idea? So what happened is this. You guys know, usually my uh, episodes here are predicated by something that happened and that triggered, and it's like, oh, I really need to think about this further. So one of the the lessons in the course that I'm working on is going to be a lesson um, incorporating some of the teachings of Eric Mason, his new um, volume in Urban Apologetics, because the issue of cults and false gospels has been on my radar for years. In fact, uh, the most thorough discussion or teaching on it um, that I had at, at I guess a few years ago, was 
David Platt's Secret Church. And I'll put a link to that in the uh, show notes too, because Secret Church is an amazing, an amazing event that happens once a year that David Platt and his folks do where they just teach all night. It's actually pretty cool. Um, But one year they taught on false gospels. And the reason that we need to understand false gospels is because we need to know today where these ideas come from. And I will tell you, a lot of them come from history, but we've made history in our culture, in our, our American context, to sound really boring with a bunch of dates and things on a timeline and disembodied and disassociated uh, information from real life and made it sound like it's something that nobody would really be interested in. If it weren't for documentaries on the History Channel trying to be cool, I probably wouldn't have deep-dived into some of the stuff that I have over the years, like the history of all the popes or the, the history of Christianity that, I guess, ultimately culminated in me going back and to school and working on a master's and then a doctorate. So here are four things I learned, and I, I don't know if I'm saying I learned it Yeah, because I'm always learning. I like to think that um, I'm a teachable sort of person. Um, I don't know everything, and I'm constantly learning, which unfortunately puts me in a constant state sometimes of uh, trying to be a perfectionist to get something out because I'm writing and I'm putting together content and materials for training and lessons, and then I don't get it finished because I'm sitting there going, oh, I missed something. But I'm starting to to kind of get over that. Y'all pray for me. So here's four things I learned last week when a Jehovah's Witness stopped by my house. And they probably won't come back. And I'll probably get get blacklisted again. You think that's funny, but yeah, um, at our old house, um, we moved about a year ago in our old neighborhood. I'm pretty sure we were blacklisted by the local uh, Jehovah's Witnesses. (laughs) They didn't come by anymore after talking to me a few times. But anyway, here's four things I learned. One is Bible translation history matters. Now, I've done a whole episode on the history of how we got our Bible. And what's interesting about Bible translation is understanding, and what was valuable for this conversation I had with this uh, woman that stopped at my house, is one, it... Bible translation history matters because I knew that the Bible was written in Hebrew and then in Greek, and then it was translated to Latin, and then it was translated to English, and I knew some of the details around all of that. But in my study of Bible translations, one of the things that I also had learned is that the Jehovah's Witnesses don't use the King James translation of the Bible, although she thought they did. And and that's what I learned. It wasn't that I, I learned that Bible, the, knowing for me, knowing the history was important. And while I already kind of thought that, what I didn't know is that they didn't know. You see, they sent her by herself. So if she was sent to my house by herself, she was probably a top dog, right? Like a top person, somebody who uh, was really good at um uh, at witnessing and, and knocking on doors and stuff because she didn't have uh, anybody with her. And she she knocked on my door, poor thing. Um, but I learned that she didn't know that her translation of the 
of the Bible that is what I call King James Version inspired intentionally removed and reworded verses and scripture passages that focus on the Trinity or that support the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, what was crazy about the day that that she knocked on my door, I want to say it was probably maybe two o'clock in the afternoon. Yeah, probably about two something in the afternoon because I was on the tail end of or or at the beginning of getting ready to leave because I had to go pick up my kid from school. So it was probably around two something when she knocked on the door and I talked to her because I was like, "Ah, I got time. So I didn't run her off. And then that morning, I had spent all morning prepping to teach on theology using the book of Hebrews, um, teach to, to putting together a lesson on theology, Christian doctrine and theology. That was my whole morning. Like I got up at like early at seven and I spent all morning preparing this teaching. So I'm knee deep in basic theology. So that's number two. Number one is Bible translation history matters and understanding where ideas come from, even for the false gospels that are out there. Basic theology is number two. The In the course that I've been developing and, and teaching, uh, we covered the Nicene Creed on week one um, because I wanted to make sure everybody understood we were all on the same playing field here. here here's what's important about that. I came across on the internet, on uh, YouTube, not too long ago, at some point over the summer, um, this website called Useful Charts. And this guy, yeah, I think he's in Canada, makes these charts that are phenomenal. And I ordered the one that is the family tree of all the different denominations, all the different Christian denominations. And one of the things that you will notice on this denomination chart is that 95% of the uh, various Christian denominations in the world and I'm talking Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, everybody that has come from uh, Judaism to Christianity to the seven ecumenical councils, everybody on this chart, represented on this chart, 95% of them affirm the Nicene Creed. Now, if you're not familiar with the Nicene Creed, I'll put a link to it in the in the show notes. But the Nicene Creed is basically a creed, a creedal statement that uh, says, here's what we believe as followers of Jesus. And it affirms the Trinity. Um, it affirms the resurrection. Um, it even affirms the, the virgin birth. Um, it is affirmed by several ecumenical councils, seven of which are considered major, and lots and lots and lots has been written on the seven major ecumenical councils. And so this was what I was knee-deep swimming in all morning, right? Basic theology. So four things I learned from this conversation I had with a Jehovah's Witness that day, that afternoon, is Bible translation history matters. Basic theology also matters. What do I believe? Um, When we think of it from the standpoint of apologetics and defending one's faith, uh, we like to assume that everybody believes what we believe. And Jehovah's Witnesses and other false gospels think that what they believe in its differences makes them superior or better than, than other Christian religions, but they still want to count themselves as Christians. But according to the Nicene Creed, 
you don't get to count yourself as a Christian. According to the Ecumenical Council, uh, the first major one at Nicaea, where we get the Nicene Creed from, um, you don't get to call yourself a Christian if you don't affirm these basic tenets of the faith. And the Jehovah's Witnesses don't. Neither do the Mormons and, well, Hebrew Israelites and some other folks. But that's another podcast for another day. So Bible translation number one, basic theology number two. Number three, I learned in this conversation, and, and by the way, she didn't know. Let me let me back up before I jump to number three. She didn't know, this is what I learned from her, that she didn't know or they didn't know that her her understanding of the Trinity or what she basically said to me about the Trinity was, and by the way, I was as nice as pie as that. When I tell you, Sometimes, you know, it's, you're not, I I don't like to be argumentative for the sake of argument. So in this conversation I'm having with her, I was just, I tried to be just as pleasant as a displaced New Yorker in the South possibly could be. (laughs) So, um, so when we're taught, I mentioned the Nicene Creed, I mentioned the Trinity and I I was very polite. I said, you know, I said, I understand. I said, you're coming from an organization where I understand you guys don't affirm the Trinity and, uh, you know, it's okay for you to believe it, but I affirm the Trinity. And she responds back. She says, well, you know, the word Trinity is not in the Bible. And I said, you're absolutely correct. Now she looked at me at first a little surprised that I said that, but I was like, you are absolutely correct. The Trinity, the word Trinity is not in the Bible. And it's not in the Bible because the Bible is written in Greek and Trinity shows up as a Latin word. Just like every year in December, we add new words to the Oxford English Dictionary because somebody made up a word to express a meaning or definition that we didn't have a word for or the definition changed. Latin, when the Bible was translated into Latin, or as it was translated into Latin, as people, as theologians, as Christian theologians were writing in Latin, um, theological defenses for the church were writing about the Bible. Tertullian, the African church father, in uh, the 200-something, came up with the word Trinitas, which was probably already a Latin word, but he was using it to mean the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I mean, think about it. You're writing everything by hand. You don't have a printing press. It became shorthand for in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Like, you know, the Trinity, the Holy Trinity. I said, so I said to her, I said, so that's how we got the word Trinity. I said, it's actually a Latin word. And therefore, it wouldn't be in the Bible because the Bible was not written in Latin. It was written in Greek. And so, and she goes, well, it was written by, but the person who came up with that word was a pagan. And I was like, yeah, um, no. And I said, Tertullian was a Christian. Uh, He was the first to use Trinity uh, or Trinitas in the Christian context, just like the word gospel is not a Christian word per se. We just took it over. It simply means good news. And so the good news of Jesus before the word gospel was used about the good news of Caesar. So yeah, maybe the words came from pagan use before, but just like we do in English, it was appropriated to a Christian context for the purpose of explaining things. So 
she didn't really seem to like that. She kind of made a face, but I tried to continue being nice. So I was like, yeah, so I agree with you. You're right. Trinity doesn't show up. I said, but I do still believe in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, because that's what it does say in the New Testament, in Greek, even in your English translation. And so Bible translation is important. Basic theology is important. Understanding the history of how we got some of our words. And number three, awareness of false gospels. And so that's why I mentioned Secret Church and David Platt a few years ago was very impactful to me. I literally sat there and watched most of the videos in one afternoon. But he walks through all these different false gospels. And it's easy enough to find this stuff on the internet. But what I've learned over the years with the internet is that it is an overwhelming volume of information, while at the same time, uh, it's hard to kind of con- kind of put it in some kind of order. It's like a big blob of information. It's Play-Doh before I make something. It's a box of Legos that I don't, and I lost the instructions. So I just build something. And what I build might look nice, but it may not make any sense. And so having an awareness of the false gospels, because most of false gospels have some, have some element of truth to them. They have some element of truth to them. And so having an awareness of these various uh, false gospels that are around. And when I did a teaching a few years ago on Jude, and I loved, uh, we actually walked through Jackie Hill Perry's uh, Bible study on Jude together. It's very important for us as Christians then and now to be aware of what people are saying. Even Jesus asked, who do men say that I am? And the answers the disciples gave him were, well, there are these wrong answers. And then there's this right answer. So, one, Bible translation. Two, basic theology. Three, awareness of false gospels uh, so that when these people show up at your front door, you can speak to them in a way, without being rude, of course, but in a way that shares the truth in love. Number four, the names of God. Here was something that she started to grasp for, I don't know, straws maybe, with our conversation. And I had, as part of my theology lesson, discussed the names of God because you have the names of God in the Old Testament. And we love to make music about them, uh, worship songs, Jehovah Jireh, my provider. It rhymes. It sounds great. Um, but Jehovah's Witnesses only affirm the name Jehovah for God. So they won't use any of the other names of God in the Bible. And because they don't believe in the Trinity, that actually means that they don't believe that Jesus is divine. They don't see Jesus as God. And so when Jesus says, I am, seven different times uh, in the Gospels, and when he affirms uh, that he is the Messiah, um, and when others in the New Testament affirm that he is the Messiah, that he is God, um, Jehovah's Witnesses don't believe that. They think that he was a nice teacher. And so understanding the names of God and being familiar with the uh, seven I am statements allowed me to engage her in conversation beyond the one or two verses that she was aware of in Psalms and I think one or other place uh, where she uh, focused on Jesus being the son of God and not God. And I thought that was interesting, and I can see where somebody might find that confusing. And I told her, I said, you know, if I had more time, maybe we could draw a picture or a chart. I said, but 
Um, since you're operating with a translation of the Bible that intentionally leaves out the parts about the Trinity, um, affirming the Trinity, it's hard for me to have that conversation with you because you're quoting a verse, first of all, from the Old Testament. Um, second, uh, you're leaving out the, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Let us make man or make humankind in our own image. Um, you know, you're, you're, you're skipping over stuff. And that's why I said that, you know, a little bit earlier, the reading Revelation and reading uh, the book on creation, reading Genesis and Revelation this summer has been such a profound uh, personal project for my personal theology, because in order for me to wrap my mind around what this Jehovah's Witness was saying to me, I needed to really be sure I understood who my God is and what that means to me. So the question that we end up with is, how important is historical theology? And and right now, I'd say a lot of our ideas and theology are very post-World War II with a sprinkling of enlightenment. And one of our early No More Silos episodes was on historical Christianity. It's a, it was a term that in 2020 was being bounced around quite a bit, and still some now, by the anti-woke Christian circles who thought the American founding fathers were Orthodox Christians. But if I go back to what I was saying a moment ago about the Nicene Creed and understanding that 90 to 95% of Orthodox Christian denominations, including the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Churches, affirm the Nicene Creed, specifically affirming the Trinity, well, then I would say that some of our founding fathers were not necessarily Orthodox in their beliefs. Um, they, Some of them even espoused ideas uh, not too dissimilar to the Jehovah's Witnesses. So the things that I learned about realizing how important translation and theology and awareness of false gospels and names of God, uh, all of that matters from an educational standpoint, understanding the history. Where does all that, where do we get our ideas? And so the ideas that that the Jehovah's Witnesses have in theology was actually debunked by one of in one of the uh, one or more actually of the ecumenical councils in the early church. But we don't spend a lot of time walking through all of that, and so maybe that's something that I'll do on the Patreon page. I'll put up some teachings and do a lesson on um, the seven ecumenical councils, um, or do a lesson on the Crusades, because. Here's the thing. There are probably what I would say several impactful historical events that affected our theological ideas to this day in 2023. Um, the first of which, of course, is the destruction of the Jewish temple in Jerusalem in AD 70. Why does that impact us today? Well, it changed the playing field for the Jewish people. In the time of Christ, there were nine or more different quote-unquote denominations of Judaism, but one survived. And the challenge that all of them had in that that shift was that Christianity, which started really very much like another denomination of Judaism, one that just believed that their Messiah had finally come, was very much around and built around temple worship. Not that they worshipped the temple, but that they were focusing on um, 
all of their sacrifices were at the temple. All of their uh, worship activities required them to be at the temple. And here's the irony in that. What happened during the pandemic lockdowns? A lot of churches are still suffering right now because we're trying to articulate why someone should come to church. Like, seriously, why should someone come to church? Well, we're the church. The church, the ecclesia, is the body of Christ. It's the gathering of the people. And so the destruction of the Jewish temple in Jerusalem in AD 70 matters to us now simply because we're, a lot of us are still thinking we need a building to survive. And Jesus told us we don't. The other thing, another historical um, event that affects our current theological ideas are the ecumenical councils, which I was just talking about. They're all really, another way of looking at it is they're clarifying statements on the Trinity and uh, Mary, uh, the mother of Jesus, um, and ideas and philosophy and theology tangled up in language nuances, Greek versus Latin, cultural and political issues of the time, power struggles. Um, But the thing that when I was teaching on the ecumenical councils in our class um, last week that I noticed, when I was growing up, we would talk about the Old Testament in the context of the generations, you know, Abraham, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And you would hear black preachers say it like that, you know, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of Joseph, like this generational thing mattered. But the thing that, that Pete Scazzaro points out in his uh, Emotionally Healthy Discipleship books is that sometimes we need to look we need to reframe how we're looking at these generations in the old testament because what we see is a family that repeats the same problems and issues generation after generation um questions come up and sometimes they answer it differently and they keep going until they get it right or until the answer changes Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What do we notice when we line up the seven major ecumenical councils in the early church? The time frame between each of them is about a generation, about 50 years or so, sometimes less, sometimes more. But the point is, is that generationally, these cultural and political issues keep coming up and a new generation comes along and they've got a what they think is a new idea and don't realize it was covered previously. Or they have a new idea and they notice something different because they're building on the faith of their fathers and mothers. And so ecumen- studying the ecumenical councils is actually a very rich study. Um, other Another historical event that uh, I think impacts our theology to this day is the Muslim conquest, or what's called the Muslim conquest, the spread of Islam. When Islam happened, uh, came on the scene, it was it was a huge shift, and for a whole host of reasons, you could teach literally a whole class just on that, on any one of these events, really. But for me, and I've talked about this on the, on the podcast before, it's that challenge with the heart language thing that became the biggest problem. That's the thing that's really stuck with me. From a no more silo standpoint, we can talk about the political and the power and all of that 
um, when it comes to Islam and the, and the Arab conquest and all of that. But it affects us today because we have so many churches that are still insisting on teaching and speaking as if the King James translation is the most holy translation on the planet. And it is a difficult sell to the next generation because they don't study Shakespeare anymore in school. Not the way we did, not the way our parents did. Nobody talks like that anymore. So it's causing problems in marriages and relationships and with uh, kids and adults and understanding God's word and making it seem like it's something that you just can't understand and it's too complicated when really God's word is not that complicated. Love God, love people, show you love God by how you treat people. It's literally that simple. But because in the six, seven hundreds, the people who were Christians were studying God's word in Latin at that point in time and not in their heart language, not in their mother's tongue, not in their, their indigenous language for wherever it was that they happened to be. It was easy to let go of their Christian, Christian identity and become absorbed into this new Muslim identity simply because they weren't thinking, writing, and teaching God's word at home in their home language. It, w- it became this, this uh, it became a class separation. And we're doing that now. We are doing that now. Now, the other events, and, and I'm going to re- get this, uh, kind of try to land the plane here, so to speak, um, that I think were most impactful and historical, and maybe I'll talk about them as we go along, but um, or I'll focus on it in our Patreon uh, space, the Crusades. You know, that's like what uh, how to not do Christianity 101, um, the Reformation, uh, an effort to correct the ship, you know, bring it back around again. Um, the transatlantic slave trade. We took creation where we're all made in dignity and in the image of God and said, except for these people, <laughs> the transatlantic slave trade. Um, then we have the Enlightenment where we were like, you know what? We're just going to focus on what we can prove and what we can understand. And then you have the Victorian era. Um, and the abolitionist movement and the Dead Sea Scrolls, which in my mind actually simply just proved the Bible to be true. It just proved the Bible to be true. So there's an entire lesson um, on these historical events in my class that I'm working on, um, and it shows the challenge that we've had over the centuries with combating bad theology with good theology. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, when someone shows up and knocks on your door, if you don't know your theology, don't know what it is that you think about God, this is why we all should be theologians as believers in Christ, um, is that we simply need to know what we believe in and why we believe it. So I'm working on updating the blog uh, for on our website at ericasantiago.com and uh, kind of making some changes there. I'm also updating the Patreon page with some video lessons on some of these different topics where I can expound upon it further in the event that you're interested um, in showing your support that way and how these events show up today. 
thank you for joining me on this uh quick trip into church history. I know that I talked about it before on the podcast, but I think it was something that needed to be brought up again and uh, exploring its relevance in shaping our beliefs. As the saying goes, when we don't know our history, we're doomed to repeat it. And so thanks for joining me today as I have talked through that. And I am excited about um, the... Uh, future episodes that I'm working on and some of the ideas that I have for, uh, for No More Silos. Thanks for trekking with me and I hope you have a great rest of your day. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Cultural Christianity um, and uh, I'll see you soon.